0: Thank you. Well, hey everyone. Um, Welcome. Welcome. I know there's a few new people here. Um, I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia and really excited to do this talk tonight. We're up to step five. We typically just go through the steps in order and then the last couple chapters in the text section of the big book and then we start over again. And I love step five. There's so many like awesome promises here. It talks about the nearness of our creator that's what we experience um but before we get to that um i'll just tell you a bit about me and then do a quick maybe 10 minute run through of steps one through four because it's like if we're building a house we have to make sure the foundation is solid so we just wanted to do a quick overview so for those of you who don't know me Um, I came into OA when I was in high school, already a full-blown compulsive eater. I stole food, I stole money for food. At my worst, I was binging and purging up to six times a day and actually had to have my esophagus surgically retightened because of the abuse I heaped on it. Um, I was a walking dead person. I was a compulsive liar. I did things like cut myself with a razor to get attention. I one time faked a rape and went to the hospital and took the um, pills that the nice nurse gave me so I wouldn't get syphilis from my fake rapist. I wasn't well physically. I was not stable mentally. And I certainly was not well spiritually, even though I always believed in God. Um, at one point in OA, someone said to me, if you have such a great relationship with God, why are you still binging? And I couldn't answer that. Um, I kept binging my first seven years in OA until I was introduced to the God who I believe launches search and rescue missions for addicts. Um, And once I committed my life to this God, it was like a hand reached into my soul and yanked out the obsession. Um, So I'm excited to talk about step five and its role there. But first let's talk about the earlier steps so we can have some context. Um, I wanna talk first, Step one, powerlessness, because this really tripped me up for a long time, right? And again, if we don't have a solid foundation, a step one, there's no way we can have a solid two or three or four, then five, just won't work. We're wasting our time. So powerlessness, page 24 of our book says, we're unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force, the memory of the suffering and humiliation of a week or a month ago. We're without defense against the first drink or the first compulsive bite. What does that even mean? Um, but what they're telling us is our defense against doing harmful things is generally our memories, right? Um, I'm allergic to cats. So if someone invites me to their house and they have a cat, immediately my memory will just go grab the data points in my brain that says, you know, no, you went near a cat this day and you had an asthma attack. No, you went near a cat that day and you ended up in the hospital. Nope. You ended up near a cat and you, you know, you couldn't breathe. Your eyes were red, generates a thought to run across the bridge to my will, where I make decisions, say danger, don't do it. Cats will give you an asthma attack. And so I don't go near cats ever. Um, I'm really, I'm really careful. Um, But it didn't work that way with food. It worked that way with everything else, with touching hot stoves, with looking both ways before I crossed the street with cats. But in college, I used to binge on these certain kind of cookies. They'd come in a box of 20. And I'd always tell myself, I'm just going to have one or two. We all know how that story ended, right? I'd eat the whole box, sometimes more. So there I would go about to buy my box of 20 and just have one or two and stored in my brain are all these data points of me saying, I'm just gonna have one or two, but I end up eating the whole box. So my memory does its job. It grabs the data points, generates a thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind to say, stop, danger. You won't be able to stop at one or two. You've done this 50, a hundred times and you've never been able to stop. Don't do it. Except unlike with cats and everything else, When it came to food, the connection, the bridge between my memory and my conscious mind was broken. So that thought couldn't get across and my memory couldn't protect me. Um, Sometimes people say, oh, keep the memory green. That line is not in the big book because we don't have the power to keep the memory green. Um, I had no defense. I was hopeless right? If I couldn't remember, um, imagine having a broken bridge when it comes to crossing streets, right? And your memory forgets, doesn't tell you, you have to look both ways because if a truck hits you, you're roadkill. I mean, we would be in big trouble, right? Um, But I had a broken bridge when it came to food. No connection between my memory and my conscious mind. Self-knowledge does not fix it. Desire does not fix it. We are a hundred percent hopeless without a miracle. But luckily, right? Our program gives us the formula for a miracle. Page 45 tells me that lack of power is my problem. And then it tells me exactly what my solution is. And it doesn't say my solution is meetings or food plans or fellowship. Those are all good, but that's not solution with a capital S. The solution the book gives us is to find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. I love that sentence, like find a power, this book will help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. Um, So like, assuming someone doesn't believe in God, let's play detective. And we see the big book here is giving us our first clues about how to find this power greater than me, which will solve my problem. Well, if it's going to solve my problem, this power must be able to reason. Like a hurricane is a power greater than me, but it can't think. Um, This power must be smart because I'm pretty smart and I couldn't figure out how to get over this. This power must be strong because this illness kicked my butt. So it has to be stronger than me and stronger than the illness. And finally, and most important, this power could think, could be smart. And strong and still not do a thing. So, this power must care about me. Otherwise, why would it bother trying to solve my problem? Smart, strong, and cares about me. That's a God I'm interested in having a relationship with. So, we know God's smart, strong, and cares about us. And page 53 gives us more clues, but it tells us that God can be blocked by calamity, pomp, worship of other things, and dishonesty. And our book continues and it says, reason only brings us so far. So we gather the evidence, but then what do we do? For me, it started with a prayer. Um, now, why pray, right? Um, well, prayer is the currency in the spiritual world. In the physical world, if I wanna get a bag of groceries or a tank of gas, I hand the clerk, bill. Um, Money is currency in the physical world, but obviously I can't hand God a 20 and ask for power over my food obsession. The currency is prayer. So I prayed for me. I said, God, I've always had fixed ideas of what you were like and how to worship you. I'm willing to admit it's all wrong and start over and let you show me what you're like and how to worship you. And that was really my step three, where I surrendered my life to God on a practical note, What does that look like? It means I'm out of the outcome business. I no longer do things to get a result or demand to have my way. So, for instance, this past weekend, my kids were home from college, wanted to put up the tree and, you know, get out all the ornaments and look at them. And one of my kids just wanted to lie on the couch on their phone, like they're in body, but that's about it. And I just thought, like, I'm no longer running the show. I'm here, I'm putting up the tree, putting up the ornaments. Whoever wants to join me, great. I offered the invitation. And if it's not accepted, that's okay. That's not my business. I'm out of the results business. Um, and I got to tell you, that makes things a lot easier. It's not my business. Um, whether my kids go to church, whether they, what major they pick in college, Um, the only thing that's my business is, am I raising them? And am I living the rest of my life the way I think God wants me to? Um, and living that way is how I stay sane. And it makes my life narrow in a good way that I have tunnel vision. My tunnel vision is God, what would you have me do? Most things in the world are just none of my business. It makes life way easier um so third step then we do our fourth step for me i looked at character defects i looked at my resentments and especially i looked at how i was wrong um the big book tells me if i harbor resentments if i'm a safe harbor for resentments i'm cut off from the sunlight of the spirit my only hope in recovery is being protected by god so if i'm cut off from that i'm in trouble It's like being cut off from my oxygen supply, my, my spiritual oxygen supply. So I had to resolve my resentments. Um, A couple of things I avoided doing. I avoided saying this person is spiritually sick. So I just need to see that and pray for them because that just set me up to be on a prideful hilltop. If I have a resentment, there is always 100% of the time something wrong with me. And a lot of time it's because I think people should run their lives in a way that makes me happy. With my kids, my part was often, I think my children should make life choices that will make me happy. And that's just selfish and controlling. Or I think I should only have to do things that I want to do, which is selfish and self-centered. Then I looked at my fears and I love how the big book talks about fears. It says fear is an evil and corroding thread, like evil. Ugh. Um, so I had to look at the reason for my fears. And when I drilled down, I always found I didn't want to be sad or I didn't want to be uncomfortable, but this program tells me that I have to learn to live with discomfort. So for example, fear that my kids won't finish college. Then I drill down. If they don't go to college, they won't get good jobs. If they don't get good jobs, they'll have horrible lives. If they have horrible lives, I'll be sad. And I look at all my like crazy dishonest thinking here. My plain God mind thinks that no college equals a life of failure. And so I have to root that out. Um, And then I ask, what would God have me do? And that's model good behavior and pray. And by the way, one of my kids is in college. The other decided not to finish college, just got a job. And I am perfectly okay with that um, because it's really none of my business. So I finish up my step four with an analysis of my harms, my past relationship and the crafting of a sex ideal. And now I am ready for step five. So in the big book on page 72, it starts talking about step five. And the first thing it does is tell me why I need to do this step. And it gives me three reasons. One, I'm trying to get a new attitude. I'm trying to change, to not be such a selfish, self-centered person. But look at the second reason, even better. I'm trying to get a new relationship with my creator. See, this program isn't about believing in God. I always believed in God. But to me, God was, you know, the ultimate Santa Claus. I was ready to hand him my list, try to be nice. And then he was expected to leave everything for me. Um but this program changes it. And it's about having a relationship with him, a right relationship. And this step is gonna help me. And number three, to help me with the obstacles in my path. What are the character defects that are blocking me from my new relationship with my creator? And it says, okay, I've already started to see what my defects are. Now they're about to be cast out. I'm not usually one who like dissects wording. Um, I'm looking more for like the love behind the big book, the spirit of it. But look at these words. They're about to be cast out. Um, I don't do the casting out. God does it. That's how it works. I look at my defects. I admit them, but he removes him. I think we read these words so often that it's easy to miss out on like the awesomeness of it all. They're my defects, a big wall that I alone built between myself and my creator. But what does God do? Does he say, well, Janet, you built this wall, you caused this mess, so go clean it up yourself and I'll be here waiting for you when you're done. He doesn't. He comes in with a broom and a mop to help me clean it up. He just keeps proving his love over and over to us. So in the next paragraph, they tell us another like super duper important reason why we can't skip this step. It says, if we skip this step, we may not overcome drinking or compulsive eating. We may not stop binging. The text says that when people try to avoid this humbling experience, almost invariably, they got drunk. Having persevered with the rest of this program, they wondered why they fell. Well, how come they fell just because they didn't do a step five? Well, by not disclosing everything, they were dishonest. And yes, dishonesty by omission is still dishonesty. Top of page 73, it says these people wondered why they fell. And as an aside, a person shouldn't wonder, a person should always know why they fell, why they got into relapse. You know, we never want to just tell someone, oh, you fell, you got into relapse, go find another sponsor and start with step one. We help them figure out why they fell. Um, But here they're telling us not doing a thorough fifth step is a cause of relapse. And AA 12 and 12, which I highly recommend, great book, goes into great detail on this, um, starting on page 55. After talking about all the different consequences of avoiding a fifth step, including irritability, anxiety, remorse, depression, they conclude by saying that most of us would declare that without a fearless admission of our defects to another human being, we could not stay sober. It seems plain that the grace of God will not enter to expel our destructive obsessions until we are willing to try this. I mean, that's a strong statement, but it's got some beautiful imagery. The grace of God enters in to expel my destructive obsession. That's a really cool image. God just comes in and kicks out the illness, just chases out the food obsession the way like a woman with a broom might tell a cat to just go scat. Um, that's how strong and loving God is. And as a side note, it's always important for me to remember it's the grace of God that gets rid of the obsession, not any hard work I might do. It's as if like there's a raging hurricane and my house is flooded and a helicopter comes to rescue stranded people. My job is to get onto the roof so the helicopter can reach me. I can't just say, pick me up at my front door. I'll drown if I do that. But let me never be so arrogant as to say that I rescued myself. All I did was climb up those steps to the roof so that I was in a position to be rescued. So back to the big book here, Um, continuing on page 73, they say that more than most people, we lead double lives, we're like actors. To the outer world, we present our stage character. We want to enjoy a certain reputation, but we know in our hearts, we don't deserve it. So we've got this guilt and guilt gets a bad rap, right? People you know, say, no, we should never feel guilty. That's not true. Guilt is helpful if it encourages me to really admit my character defects, what I've done wrong. I mean, if I take 50 bucks from your wallet and I feel guilty, Well, I should feel guilty. Then my conscience is doing its job. But that guilt is only helpful if I go to you and confess and give you the $50 back. We often carry around a vague sense of guilt and we just beat ourselves up and say, oh, I'm a piece of crap. And we call that humility. It isn't. That is not humility. So the book goes on to say that the alcoholic or for us, the compulsive eater is revolted by what he does on his sprees. Says coming to his senses, he is revolted at certain episodes he vaguely remembers. We can't be vague. Um, We can't have these boogeymen in the closet and say, well, I think I sorta kinda did some not so nice things in my past, but they really weren't my fault anyway. We can't go to God like that. We have to go to God and say, I faked a mugging here. Um, I lied here. I cheated this person. I stole from that person. I was nasty to this other person. I need to be specific. Why? Because if we don't get these things out, the big book tells us we end up pushing them far inside ourselves, which leads to constant fear and tension, which leads to more drinking, more binging. Fear and tension, mental, emotional drain. And then the chapter continues by saying, psychologists generally don't work for people like us because we're generally not honest with them and they keep hammering home honesty saying we must be entirely honest with somebody if we expect to live long and happily in this world so again i want to say a few things about honesty um basically if we're not honest we're not going to recover Period case closed. If we're not honest, it's like we took a big black sharpie and wrote the words, keep out God across our hearts. God won't come in when we're dishonest. Ways we're often dishonest is with the one person we probably should be the most honest with, our sponsors. We're often dishonest about food, right? We lie by omission when we don't tell them things we know that we should, or even not about food. We know the things we should say. And think about it, if I'm dishonest with my sponsor, I've made an idol, a false God out of my sponsor, thinking that my relationship with her is what's gonna get me recovered. But a sponsor's job is to help me put my hand in the hand of God. Um, I'm better off honest with no sponsor than dishonest with a sponsor. And if I'm dishonest with my sponsor, I'm actually stealing from her. I'm stealing her time. She could go out and be working with someone who means business. So we are people who have to be honest. Dishonesty is not an option for us. Whether or not earth people need to be honest, not my business, but for people like us, it means no lies, no cheating on taxes, no cheating on husbands. We have to live in a way that's rigorously honest. Um, So I'm gonna go back to the AA 12 and 12 for a bit. I'm on page 60 where it says that, until we actually sit down and talk aloud about what we have so long hidden, our willingness to clean house is still largely theoretical. When we are honest with another person, it confirms that we've been honest with ourselves and with God. So now they're talking about honesty, but they go even further than that. They continue by saying, going it alone in spiritual matters is dangerous. Sure, it's a lot easier to just go to God and say, yeah, God, I faked a mugging and I'm sorry, than to have to admit that to another person. It's harder because there's fear, right? What if my sponsor doesn't like me? What if she judges me? And just as an aside, a sponsor needs to make sure that the sponsee feels safe enough to confide anything. I always tell my sponsees that anything they tell me in a fifth step goes with me to the grave. Um, And I'm not a judge by letting my sponsees know some of the um, not too sane things that I've done that helps them feel safe enough to confide anything. And as an aside in this age where most of us are sponsoring long distance, I always find it helpful to do the fifth step and most step work on FaceTime or Zoom or Skype. It's been my experience, a deeper bond can be formed between sponsee and sponsor if we can at least see each other, even if we can't be in the same room. And that helps the sponsee feel safe and cared for. So back to the 12 and 12 on page 60, they say, It is worth noting that people of very high spiritual development almost always insist on checking with friends or spiritual advisors the guidance they feel they've received from God. Surely then a novice ought not lay himself open to the chance of making foolish, perhaps tragic blunders in this fashion. While the comment or advice of others may be by no means infallible, It is likely to be far more specific than any direct guidance we may receive while we are still so inexperienced in establishing contact with a power greater than ourselves. See those words? Establishing contact with a power greater than ourselves. That is our goal. And that is mind boggling. The power that like flung the stars into the sky wants contact with me, wants a relationship with me. And step five, I'm on my way. So the 12 and 12 says, the next thing I'm to do is to find the right person to do this with. Generally, it's our sponsor, someone who's done this work before. Um, The big book makes some caveats. Page 74, it says, we can't do our fifth step with, that we can do our fifth step with a member of our family, but we can't disclose anything to them which will hurt them and make them unhappy. It says, we have no right to save our own skin at another person's expense. And I think that's a rule both for step five and for life. I have no reason to save my own skin at another person's expense. I have to put the welfare of others ahead of my own. And then the big book gives us a rule, not just for step five, but for life. We must be hard on ourselves, but always considerate of others. Being hard on ourselves gets a bad rap, but it's necessary in the sense of being ruthless about admitting my character defects and admitting where I'm wrong. Um, I mean, there are times I've caught myself thinking, I hope bad things happen to so-and-so. And And what did I do? I didn't deny and say, oh, well, she deserved it. I called my sponsor. I confessed mean-spiritedness, asked God to forgive me and to remove the defect. And then I said a prayer for that person. I think that's what it means to be hard on ourselves. There's no beating ourselves up, but we own what we've done wrong. So the next paragraph gives the answer to a little big book trivia question. What is the only step we are allowed to postpone? So that tells us all 11 steps we cannot postpone, but we can postpone the fifth step, but only if there isn't a suitable person around. I mean, I suppose if we get, you know, shipwrecked on a desert island and there's no one there, we're allowed to wait. Um, But as soon as we get rescued, we need to find someone. Um, And it tells us who a suitable person is. It says it's important that they can keep a confidence and that they understand and approve what we're doing. And once we have the right person, we go to it holding nothing back. I had a sponsor who, when I was done, said, okay, now tell me your deepest, darkest secret. We hold nothing back. It says on page 75, we pocket our pride and boy, do we pocket our pride. And then the promises. They are beautiful promises, but just like I didn't wanna talk about step five in a vacuum, I don't wanna just talk about the fifth step promises in a vacuum because it's really cool to see the progression of them. The first promises are with step two. There are no step one promises. Step one, I'm just admitting I'm powerless and my life is unmanageable. It's as if I went to a doctor and admitted I had diabetes. I admitted it. I walked through the door, but just admitting it, nothing changes. Remember, the big book tells me lack of power is my problem. So what I need to get better is power. These steps are a continuum to getting more and more power. On page 46, it talks about us getting our first infusion of power with step two. It says that as soon as we admit the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we begin, we're just beginning. We begin to be possessed of a new sense of power. Look, our first infusion of power and direction provided we take other simple steps. So once I say, okay, God, I'm willing to admit maybe you're there and maybe you can help me. I start getting power and direction, just enough power and direction to get me to step three. And step three, top of page 63, gives me more promises. It says we have a new employer with a capital E, meaning God, Um, being all powerful. He provides what we need if, So when we see the word, if we know it's a conditional statement, so a conditional promise. He gives me what I need if I keep close to him and perform his work well. Stay close to God. Try and do what I think he wants me to. And then it says, established on this footing, what's the natural result? What are the promises? We become less and less interested in ourselves. I can't make myself become less interested in myself. But God can change my heart to make me that way. So the spiritual experience is starting here. A spiritual experience is when God rewires my heart to make me more like Him. So instead of being selfish and self-centered like Janet is, I become tolerant and loving like my creator is. We become less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more we become interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. And now listen to this. As we felt new power flow in so we get more power right we started in step two with a little bit step three we get more power and we enjoy peace of mind we discover we can face life successfully and we become conscious of his presence that means we start realizing oh yeah there really is a god and he's not just up in the clouds somewhere he didn't just create the universe and is now spending the rest of eternity watching netflix it says, we begin to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We, we start losing our fear of what's gonna happen after we die. We are reborn. And then the fourth step promises on the bottom of, of page 70. It says, we've now begun to comprehend the terrible destructiveness of resentments and have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies. Tolerance, patience, and goodwill. Those were things I certainly needed to have infused into me because I didn't have them on my own. Page 71 says that their hope is that um, we're now convinced, convinced that God can remove the self-will that blocks us from him. So now we go beyond belief, we have trust. Um, And there's some promises that sound kind of yucky, but are really kind of cool. The last line of chapter five promises that if we've done this process right, we've swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about ourselves. Um, but of course, only by doing that, can we proceed to step five and those like beautiful promises. And these are my favorite promises out of all of them in the book. After step five, we're told that we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. That was my experience. I felt as if I'd been nearsighted my whole life and someone gave me a pair of, pair of glasses. Trees just looked greener. That is the only way I can describe it. It says we can be alone at per, it, at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. What a great visual it is, like like a snake shedding, you know, its skin. Our fears fall from us. And then this, we begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. So not just an awareness. We know that he's near us, whether I'm going through stress or surgery or the pain of rejection, God is right near me. And it says, we may have had certain spiritual beliefs. That was me, I wasn't an agnostic. I always believed in God, but that did nothing for me. Like if I were a diabetic and believed in insulin, but never injected it, it would do me no good. So we had beliefs before, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. God is rewiring our hearts. Does the feeling that the drink problem or for us, the food problem has disappeared, disappeared will often come strongly, often. I take that to mean that more than 50% of the time, we will not be obsessing about food. We feel we are on the broad highway, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Oh, and by the way, if you think that's awesome, just wait until you finish step nine where it tells us we will seldom, that means hardly ever be interested in liquor or food not on our food plan. And when tempted, we recoil automatically. So stick around, the miracles keep getting better. And then the 12 and 12 has even more step five promises that are really cool. On page 57, it tells us that we are people who are tortured by loneliness. And with this step, we begin to get rid of that loneliness. Oh yes, the book tells us. The fellowship helps, helps us in a social sense, but even with the fellowship, we still suffered many of the old pains of anxious apartness. That was me. I could be in a room with a hundred people and feel like I was the only person on the planet. And what's the solution? The 12 and 12 gives the answer so clearly. Step five was the answer. It was the beginning of true kinship with man and God. And the promises keep coming. Page 58 of the AA 12 and 12 says, we began to get the feeling that we could be forgiven no matter what we had thought and done. When I'm telling my sponsor all the horrible things I've thought and done, and she looks at me the same way, I start to feel maybe God can forgive me too. It also tells us that it's often while working on this step that we first feel truly able to forgive others. So we start knowing that we can receive forgiveness and we're able to give forgiveness. And another thing, page 58, it tells us we will start getting more humility. And I love the definition here. Um, They define humility as a clear recognition of what and who we really are, followed by a sincere attempt to become what we could. Isn't that pretty? Um, Page 59 has another promise, right? They just keep on coming. Um, It says that only by discussing ourselves, holding back nothing, only by being willing to take advice and accept direction, could we set foot on the road to straight thinking, solid honesty and genuine humility. Pretty interesting, straight thinking as a result of step five, but of course, right? Um, In chapter five of the big book, it says once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So by doing this spiritual work, my thinking starts to straighten out. And step five in the AA 12 and 12 ends with this on page 62. This feeling of being at one with God and man, this emerging from isolation through the open and honest sharing of our terrible burden of guilt, brings us to a resting place where we may prepare ourselves for the following steps toward a full and meaningful sobriety. And Melissa's going to talk Thursday about step six and seven, how we, you know, keep progressing. Um, but look at it. We keep progressing toward, we get to a point where we're no longer running from food. We're running toward a full, and meaningful sobriety toward an ever deepening love relationship with God. That's what he wants. I'm not running from, I'm running toward. And if there's someone here today who isn't sure that there even is a God, you can start with a maybe prayer and it might go something like this. God, I don't know if you're there. And if you're there, I don't know if you care about me, but if you're there and if you care, I need help. And I'm willing to do everything that i think you might want me to the worst that could happen is you're talking to dead air but what if there really is a god what if there is and what if that prayer is the catalyst that allows him to start a renovation job on our hearts so that we can have a spiritual experience that he begins to rewire our souls in such a way that our plans and priorities become more like his plans and priorities and when that happens the food obsession doesn't stand a chance because really and truly, as we say all the time here, the age of miracles is still with us. And step five is a rung on the ladder. And with that, I pass. Thanks.